Well, I want to encourage you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 and verses uh, 8 through 11. And um, as you can tell, I've been fighting a cold, so I apologize for, for that. We'll just trust the Lord and see how things go here this morning. So Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 8 through verse 11. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. And let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the the great privilege we have to be together and and worship a God that is so glorious and so blessed and so precious. We thank you for um, worship. We thank you for the songs that we have sang to thee. We thank you for your precious word. And um, I I would now ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to convey your word in a way that uh, brings honor and glory to thee. that, that reflects truth and that is edifying to our souls. And I, I would pray as well that you would give each of us um, ears to hear what you would have for us, but also give us understanding into the truth of Holy Scripture, that we would glory in it and apply it in our souls, in our hearts, for thy glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a few weeks since we have um, engaged in studies in Hebrews. <clears throat> and as I have noted before, the, the repetition of the word rest is what really helps to give unity to the theme, verses 1 through 11. And then even a bit more narrowly, as you look more carefully, uh, the predominant theme is the crucial importance of entering into God's rest. Um, it's not just knowing about it, but it's become a, becoming a partaker of the reality of God's rest. And that note is, is sounded um, throughout these verses. You notice in verse 1, Therefore let us fear, while a promise remains of entering his rest. Anyone, if you may seem to have come short of it. Verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest Then again in verse 5, and again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6, therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. And then verse 10, for the one who has entered his rest has himself rested from his works as God did from his so although this, this rest did have reference um, initially to, to the Israelites um, occupying the land of Canaan for a period of time, uh, its ultimate fulfillment and more glorious fulfillment is entry into the heavenly Jerusalem, um, the heavenly country, the new heavens and the new earth. So the great concern of the soul is actually entering into it, entering into that rest. And we have texts like uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I, I will give you rest, which indicate, at least in some sense, 
Uh, when a person's converted, there's an experiential entrance into the rest of God through the person of Christ. The last time we looked at this particular section, <clears throat> I think the, the, the title, so to speak, of my sermon was The Same Subject Continued. And so this morning, I want to be a little bit more creative. It's The Same Subject Continued, Part 2. And that same subject is the importance of entering God's rest. That's what we're talking about this morning. So we'll look at three features of this rest, um, and then that's followed by the right response to those three features. So in the first place, notice the spirituality of this rest. And here we're thinking about verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Um, the flow of thought here, as I understand it, is that the author, he's dealing with a, a possible objection or a tension that would arise in the minds of the readers. Um, in the content of the promise, initially, it was connected with a settling of the land of promise and just some of the texts that would have made that point. Deuteronomy 3.20, until the Lord gives rest to your fellow countrymen as to you, and they also possess the land which the Lord your God will give them beyond the Jordan, then you may return every man to his possession. Deuteronomy 12.9, For you have not as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in security. Deuteronomy 25.19, Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And then Joshua 1.13, remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God gives you rest and will give you this land. And then we read in the book of Joshua that actually happened. They were given the land and they enjoyed rest. Joshua 21:43. so the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave them all their enemies into their hand. And Deuteronomy, excuse me, Joshua 22, 4, And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he spoke to them. Uh, therefore turn now and go to your tents, to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan. So the, the promise of the possession of the land at one level, it was clearly fulfilled. However, the, the renewal of the promise in Psalm 95, 7, which is quoted in Hebrews 4, 7, indicates it was not a complete or ultimate fulfillment of the promise. In uh, Psalm 95, 7, he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not <clears throat> harden your hearts. Um, as one put it, if in fact Joshua had achieved the promised rest, there would have been no need for the renewal of the promise in Psalm 95. Accordingly, the experience of rest in Canaan was only a type or a symbol of the complete rest that God intended for his people, which was prefigured in the Sabbath rest of God, according to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2. 
So that entrance occurred in the days of Joshua. And Psalm 95 is, is subsequent to Joshua's day, referred to as long, excuse me, um, as after so long a time in chapter 4, verse 7 of Hebrews. So if Joshua had given them rest, then God would have not have kept speaking of another day uh, through Psalm 95, 7, after his people had entered Canaan. So God's invitation, Psalm 95, 7, has continued to be addressed to his people in there today. And the very existence of this invitation demonstrates that the promised rest was more than earthly Canaan. And no earthly rest um, can be the rest of God in the ultimate sense. Uh, the occupation of the land of Canaan was, was temporary and it was symbolic. Um, no geographical lo location can provide rest to the soul. No geographical location can satisfy the deepest needs of the soul. Only God is able to do that. Uh, and this is verified in Hebrews 11. It brings out the mindset and the thinking of Abraham. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. He was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That is, his heart was not set on the temporal or the material, but the eternal and the spiritual. The, the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God, that's the new Jerusalem. Uh, that's the holy city that comes down out of heaven in conjunction with the glorious and eternal establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. And this point, I think, is uh, verified in Hebrews 11 also by the outlook or the, the mindset of those who died in faith. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear they're seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. So that their understanding of their existence on this earth is strangers and exiles. It's like somebody who's traveling along the road and you stay at a Motel 6 for one night, but it's just for one night. You just keep on going. And there's, there's a sense of, I, I really don't belong here. I'm just passing through this sinful fallen place en route to eternal glory. William J. wrote, we are, we are strangers and pilgrims upon earth. We resemble the Jews in the wilderness. We're not in Egypt and we're not in Canaan, but journeying from one to the other. We're delivered from our natural state. But before we can enter glory, we have the desert world to pass, a dangerous and a tiresome place. So in the first place, we see the spirituality of this rest, the spirituality Secondly, the glory of this rest, or the incomparable glory of this rest. Verse 9, there remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This, this expands on the concept of rest from the previous verse. And I would have you notice um, one aspect of this rest, its character, um, that it is incomparably glorious. The Greek term is translated rest here, um, or Sabbath rest, it's actually different and the word that um, underlies the other uh, occurrences of the term rest. In fact, it's the only occurrence of this particular term in the New Testament. A transliteration would be something like uh, sabbatismas. William Lane wrote the term stresses 
the special aspect of festivity and joy expressed in the adoration and praise of God. He, he writes, the term appears to have been coined from the cognate verb that <clears throat> means to observe, to celebrate the Sabbath. It's only occurrence in non-Christian literature, the term Sabbath observance in four other documents from the patristic period denotes the celebration or festivity of the Sabbath. The term received its particular nuance from Sabbath instruction that developed in Judaism on the basis of Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 10, where it was emphasized that rest and praise belong together. Rest and praise belong together. The term Sabbath stresses the special aspect of festivity and joy expressed in the adoration and praise of the being of God. And an example of that, or a sense of that in Hebrews, would be from chapter 12 and verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly, and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So th this term um, adds a, a, the rea this reality that in God's rest, there's a real communion with him through Christ. Um, it's a true, a true soul, deep kind of praise and trust and worship and adoration. There's the deepest kind of, of joy that is known only to the people of God. Now, Hebrews 4, as you're aware, is quoting from Psalm 95. In the first few verses of Psalm 95, give us a, a sense of what the Sabbath rest is, is really all about. It reads like this. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his um, for it was he who made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So there, there is a sense in, in which this rest is entered into and, and enjoyed in some measure when one comes to Christ and embraces him as Savior and, and dwelt by the Spirit and empowered to worship and praise and trust in the being of God. However, uh, the, the full richest expression of it will be when the Lord returns in conjunction with the inception of the new heavens and the new earth. Philip Hughes writes, the Sabbath rest mentioned here is not of this creation, but it's the rest of the new heaven and the new earth, which are transposed into the eternity of God and partake of his unending rest. It's reserved for those whom our author designates in covenant terminology, the people of God. That is to say, those who believe and by divine grace are constituted a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, the Israel of God, the remnant chosen by grace. So this is a, a, a glorious kind of rest. It includes worship. It includes praise. It includes adoration of the being of God. And then in the third place, I would have you notice the nearness of this rest. The nearness of this rest. Verse 10 says, For the one who has entered his rest as himself also rested from his works as God did from his. And, and this verse is intended to further clarify the rest of verse 9. It's a reference, I believe, <clears throat> 
to a believer who has departed and is now with Christ. To a believer who have departed and is now with Christ. As one put it, the text makes clear, emphatically clear, that the one who has entered God's rest, whoever he or she may be, has rested from his works. It is more likely than that this is this one who has entered God's rest should be identified as a faithful member of the people of God whose perseverance is complete. It's like James 1.12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So these are the, the, the works of one's earthly pilgrimage. Um, a comparison in this text is made between the Lord um, and then the completion, entering his rest upon the completion of his work of creation, and then a believer entering into his or her rest. So rest from work suggests relief from the arduousness of the way, the societal pressure to conform from ridicule and persecution. It's rest from the labors of a faithful life in this world. So although this rest will come to its fullest and richest manifestation in conjunction with our eternal participation in the new heavens and the new earth, it is a present possession of all believers who have departed to be with Christ. This is what I mean by the nearness of this rest. When a person dies and they enter into the presence of God, there is, there is also also an enter into this rest to a great and glorious degree. Revelation 14, 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. This is very encouraging um, news, I think, for at least two reasons. Number one, it comforts our hearts about the status of those who have died in the Lord. It really serves the same purpose that the Apostle Paul makes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as to the rest who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Then Paul writes, Therefore comfort one another with these words, and we, shall also, we can comfort our hearts also about the condition of those who have died in the Lord. They have entered God's rest. They are, are presently in his eternal, glorious presence. Um, so just as God entered his rest as the culmination of creation, so believers enter God's Sabbath rest at the culmination of their earthly pilgrimage. Um, second, this helps us to see how Paul could write in Philippians chapter 1, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. That is very much better. He has a desire to, to depart and be with Christ. Well, I think that's true in part because of the difficulties that are common to all, they are no longer a factor when one has entered God's presence. For example, Job 14.1 says, Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. That's a general statement of all men and women. It applies to all in all places. This world is not heaven. Uh, in Job 5.7, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. But the desire to depart and be with Christ, I think, is intensified by the fact that 
being a believer in Christ in a world that loves darkness rather than light, it adds to the, the level of difficulty and affliction that one can experience. We read in Acts chapter 14 of Paul, he's strengthening the souls of disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith. He's encouraging new Christians. Well, how do you do that? He says to them, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The word must here is it is necessary. He's saying to people that are newly converted, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He writes in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we could add to this the glory of entering God's rest for many believers in this world is that they have endured the cruelest kind of persecution. You could say the history of the church is a history of the people of God being persecuted. And to enter into God's rest is to be delivered from the arduous labors of this life, but also from persecution. Hebrews chapter 11 <coughs> says, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release. Um, in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they should not be made perfect. It's interesting to note um, how often when you read the Bible, how you find a servants of Christ ending up in prison. Have you noticed that? Especially when you start to read through the New Testament in the book of Matthew, you read about John the Baptist, and he's this, this great noble servant of the Lord, proclaiming the truth. Then you get to chapter 14, um, and um, there he, he confronted a Herod about his sin, uh, this, the, the sin of marrying his brother's wife, and he ends up in prison, then he's beheaded. And you get to the Acts of the Apostles, and this is just really a recurring theme. Peter and John are arrested, not for shoplifting, not for murder, not for manslaughter, but for preaching about the resurrection. That's why they're in jail. So those who have entered God's rest, they've moved from the church militant to the church triumphant, from the arduous labor of warring against the world, the flesh, and the devil, to the blessedness of, of God's eternal presence. So we notice here the spirituality of this rest, um, the glory of its rest, and then it's a nearness to all of us who are believers in this world. And then in the fourth place, what is the right response to this reality and this understanding? Well, it's not to put one's Christian life on cruise control or autopilot. That's not the right response. But rather, verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. <clears throat> Excuse me, this text unveils the, the right response to the glorious benefits of entering God's rest. In, in light of that, in light of this rest, its duration, its glory, the right response is to be diligent to enter that rest. The reason is given, lest anyone fall through following the same example, disobedience. That's the disobedience of the wilderness generation. It's held as an example for us to be avoided. Don't be like them. John Owen said, it's better to have an example than to be made an example of divine displeasure. So the right response to the reality and glory of entering this eternal rest, it, it, it's not a cavalier mindset as it relates to spiritual pursuits, but it is to be diligent. 
Uh, the idea of this term is to make every effort. The King James translation, let us labor. So I, I find this to be a very helpful text in terms of what kind of mindset to employ in the living of the Christian life. The term diligent, um, it's actually the first word in the Greek text, so it receives the, the emphasis and the accent. Um, the idea is to be zealous, to take pains with. Philip Hughes wrote the verb translated strive here. It means to make haste, to be in earnest, to concentrate one's energies on the achievement of a goal. Thus the exhortation incites the recipients of the letter to display a spirit of zeal, which is the exact opposite of the spirit of unconcern that proves so disastrous for their forefathers in the wilderness and to which they themselves are in danger of capitulating. That rest of which the author has been speaking is not something to be trifled with. It calls for full seriousness and intensity of application on the part of those who wish to enter its enjoyment. This, this text also helps you and I to see that, that we need not only positive promises, but warnings in order to make progress on the narrow road that needs to life. We need promises, but this text indicates we also need warnings in order to continue on and make progress in the Christian life. Um, Owen comments really on, on verse 1 of chapter 4, which is very similar to our text. It says, therefore, <clears throat> let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to come short of it. He comments on that. He says, it was not a, a fear of dread, terror, or doubting that might weaken, discourage, or dishearten them, which he enjoined, but such a reverential respect under the promise and threatenings of God as might quicken and stir them up unto all diligence in seeking to inherit the one and avoid the other. So the purpose of these warnings is to stir up the soul to hunger, to, to hunger and thirst for righteousness and to live the Christian life with zeal. Um, observe two things here. Um, by way of uh, conclusion, first of all, the language of the text is presented as applying to all believers. Notice the, the author says, let us be diligent. Whoever's writing this, whether it's Paul or whoever, includes himself in it. He needs this counsel as well. He's concerned about every single person to whom he is writing, lest anyone should fall short. So it underscores in our mind that that diligence and not, not sloth is the God-honoring, soul-enriching way to live the Christian life. Paul says as much about himself in Philippians, not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect, I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then one final thought here. This reminds us of the, the priority of the soul as it relates to our own thinking. The priority of the soul, that is the condition of our, our soul, is, it's always the fundamental concern. The, the criteria for every single decision you and I make is <clears throat> what, what effect is this going to have on my soul, my spiritual life, my progress in faith? Well, what are the consequences or what, what's the outcome of reading this book or watching that film or embracing that habit or pursuing that relationship? Is it, will it impinge up, upon my hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Or will it undermine the supreme affection for God? The, the criteria for us, for every decision, is how will this affect the condition of my soul? Um, I was reading recently in your presence from Luke chapter 12. 
Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance. <clears throat> but he said to him, Man who appointed me a judge or an arbiter over you, he said, he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. He told them a parable, saying the man of a certain rich man was very productive. He began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? He said, This is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So he he was totally prepared for the material and the temporal, but he was unprepared. He totally neglected the condition of his soul, that which has an eternal existence. Um, this time of year, um, you, might, you might be doing the same thing, reading in the early chapters of, of Genesis and just kind of pick it up in the context. Let's remember where Abraham and Lot had to separate from one another. And in chapter 13, it says, Abraham said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me or between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers is not the whole land before you. Please separate from me. If to the left, then I'll go to the right. If to the right, I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes, saw all the valley of the Jordan that was well watered everywhere. <clears throat> this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Every time I come to that verse, yeah, there's a sense of foreboding, like the dark clouds are, are disforming, because in, in chapter 13, he moved his tents as far as Sodom. When you get to chapter 14, Lot was living in Sodom. And the New Testament tells us he was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. <clears throat> Matthew Henry wrote, Lot chose all that plain, that valley which was like the Garden of Eden. Now yield him a most pleasant prospect. It was in his eye, beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth. And therefore he doubted not but what it would yield him a comfortable settlement, that in such a fruitful soil he should certainly thrive and grow very rich. And this was all he looked at. But what became of it? While the next news we hear from him is that he's in the briars among them. He has carried captive. While he lived among them, he, he vexed his righteous soul with their conversation and never had a good day with him till at last God fired the town over his head and forced him to the mountain for safety, who chose the plain for wealth and pleasure. No, Matthew Henry says, sensual choices are sinful choices and seldom speed well. Those who in choosing relations, callings, dwellings or settlements are guided and governed by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life, and consult not the interest of their souls and their religion, cannot expect God's presence with them, nor his blessing upon them, but are calmly disappointed even in that which they principally aimed at, and miss at that which they promised themselves satisfaction in. Matthew Henry says, in all our choices, this principle should overrule us. That is best for us, which is best for our souls. So the biblical counsel here for you and I, for the good of our souls, is let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. And let us pray. <clears throat>
Father, we thank you for the time together this morning. I, I, I pray that you would help us to be men and women uh, that would, would be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I pray that you would take what we have considered, uh, apply it to our hearts, our souls. Lord, you, you know perfectly each one of our situations, and, and you know our comings, and you know our goings. And so I, I pray that you would take this word and make appropriate application to each of our hearts um, for your glory. I, I pray the effect of considering would be that it would um, increase our own devotion to thee, and delight in thee, and hungering for thee, and thirsting for thee. So I pray the um, effect of being here would be to keep us moving towards eternal glory on this narrow road that leads to life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.